0: Something
1: just blew up at the- uh, watching This is video that just came into us, so this is unedited video. You can see people coming across the finish line there, and there is the explosion one and two. Help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. It's just absolutely heartbreaking to see this. This is video again just coming in. You see the marathon uh, officials there reacting yeah. and getting those fences back so people can get... We okay, have multiple people down here, okay?
2: I don't know what the cause is.
1: Stand by.
3: People... Gravely injured, with missing limbs, bloody head.
2: A friend of ours was like, "All right, we got to get in the street." So when we huddled up, and that was going to be our plan, and we just didn't make it.
1: Boston and Fairfield, clear everybody out of there. Use caution; there, be, there might be possible additional devices. Once again, all officers monitoring. Use caution; there are possible other devices in the area. What is going on? I said, "There's been an explosion." Um, Mom, Dad and I were injured and uh, you need to come out to Boston and I think you should prepare yourself for the fact that they might be dead. Suspect one is uh, is dead. Suspect two is on the run. We have a, uh, an MBTA officer who was seriously wounded and is in surgery right now. We have uh, an MIT uh, security uh, officer who is, uh, who, is uh, who has been killed we heard uh, the police officers saying, suspect in custody, suspect in custody, and uh, I reached over to a law enforcement source of mine, and I said, did you get him? And he says, we got
0: him. But the most important one was the decision to live my life the way I want to live it, with what I have left.
3: Let April 15th be a day when we all work together to make this world a better place.
0: This that we learned today He doesn't say Red Sox, he say Boston.
2: That was two years ago, of course, when tragedy struck our city at the Boston Marathon. Now with Marathon Day approaching once again, this week on Unbillable Boston, we look back at the tragedy that was and we look at the great inspirational stories that came out of that day on Marathon Monday, this week on Unbillable Boston.
1: This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a
0: different city than it was 20 years ago.
1: The hope rises again, and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fence. The
0: world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever, and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city.
2: Welcome back to Unbillable Boston. I'm here with Sarah Worley, and uh, we've been talking about the marathon on the On the, uh, well, the second anniversary of the bombing at the marathon and sort of sharing our stories of what we remember. So I'm really grateful that, uh, Kevin White is here. So Kevin and I have got to know each other over the past couple of years. Um, he was at the marathon with his parents who were just absolutely lovely people. And, uh, of course had the the misfortune of, of being close to one of the explosions. Um, Kevin was injured happily. Not, I don't know if I, I don't want to minimize it, Kevin, but I wouldn't say, uh, Seriously, but you, you you had some injuries to your legs and
1: yeah, to, to my whole body basically. But are you
2: are you doing okay now? Or? Probably
1: about ninety eight percent recovered. Okay. The biggest issue is with the hearing because uh-huh. our eardrums were ruptured and is, is those it, don't heal great. sometimes. Right. So you get ringing in your ears, and sometimes I can't hear very well. Are you hearing
2: me okay now? My yes, voice also yeah. awesome. <laughs> a foot away from uh, me. No, well, <laughs> I know, but yeah. Um, well. Um, I mean, we laugh, but in a way we shouldn't because one of the things I've learned in meeting a lot of the the survivors is that the the injuries were just, they were really all across the board. I mean, there there were, um, you know, the the obvious ones were, of course, the the fatalities and the people that that lost a limb, and there were many, um, but, you know, people took shrapnel, people suffered head injuries, people have ringing in their ears, people have, um, you know, problems you know, concentrating, you know, in the legal world, it's a closed head injuries. It's, is, is, um, you know, a cause of action and it's a big deal because it's not an obvious injury and yet it's, it can be absolutely horrible. So Kevin is one of the examples of the people who has taken this horrible event and, and turned it around, um, for something positive. And, um, so a year ago you ran the marathon, right? Yes. Yep. And tell and, and was that in in uh, to raise money for your family and getting along or?
1: Uh, it was actually to raise money for a charity that okay. helped out helped out our family. Um, mm-hmm. That specialized, it's called the Greg Hill Foundation. It specialized in giving immediate ass- assistance to people who have had catastrophic problems like their house burns down or bad car accidents where they still have to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And this, they are able to write a quick check for, you know, several thousand dollars just to keep people afloat. And so they visit us and all the other amputees and survivors in the hospital, and without even asking any questions, said, here's a check from us. There's no strings attached. Right. We just want to let you know.
2: Um, and you're running again, again this year? Yes Just sir. to continue the punishment. Yeah. Um, and this will probably be the last year. Do You think so? I okay. Think
1: so. I think I might scale back to shorter. Duration. So. <laughs> and um, same charity or, or different um, charities actually for Boston Medical Center Uh okay. that was a hospital my mother and I were taken to um, and they provided just uh, uncanny support mm-hmm. that's what they do is they they help people sometimes who can't help themselves mm-hmm. so they have a team and uh, I get a bid number through the BAA and they said we'd love to have you run with us and train with us and so I said I can't turn you down because you guys were there for me so definitely see what I can do mm-hmm. for them. But it's, this is, has been a tough winter to train
2: in. Yeah. So I've, uh, I was, I've gotten to know uh, your folks who are just salt of the earth people. And um, so uh, your dad lost a leg that day yeah. and your mom had some injuries as well, although not as severe. My mom yeah. and
1: I had basically exactly similar the same injuries. Uh-huh. Um, it, it came down really to a matter of feet and inches of where the three of us were standing. Uh, my father obviously took the brunt of it, um, but outside of his leg, he didn't really have a scratch on him, mm-hmm. but we were directly behind him by a couple of inches and we were hit from head to toe. Uh-huh. And then uh, the person that was about two feet behind me didn't get touched at all, mm-hmm. and the woman who was about three feet to the left, she lost her leg as well too. Yes. And the people that were in front of my father uh, passed away. Or one of them did.
2: one of them did. Do you remember everything from that day, or are there some things that are just you, you can't even remember? I
1: remember almost everything except for about an hour gap when I was transferred from the first hospital to the second, or when I left the first hospital to go to the second. Um, I had had a concussion from the blast, and one of the side effects from the blast itself was everything started to swell, mm-hmm. and as I was going, a friend of mine drove me to Boston Medical Center to to find my mom and my brain had started to swell so I had a seizure and I fell backwards and knocked myself out unconscious. So that time period was a little gray but from the minute the bomb detonated to uh, going to the hospital to the extended stay at the hospital to my dad being at Mass General for two weeks, and then Spaulding, I remember pretty much all of it, which yeah. is a good and bad thing, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's some stuff you might not want to remember, right.
2: but... Well, you were telling me before we started recording that you've, it's become just a little bit of routine to, to recount yeah. that because you've talked about it so much, and um, I give you credit, I mean, I think people people um you know we needed people to step up and be brave brave and talk about it because you know those of us who weren't directly impacted it, it hurt us too in a much different way but um to to come back from that as as a city we needed you know somebody you were there that day to really lead us and and i think you you've really done that um is um i mean is it something that you you uh that you're gonna that you have used as as an inspiration to get on. I mean, I know that you 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 actually moved to Boston in part to to help with your folks, right?
1: Yeah, well, I moved here pre-marathon yeah. because I wanted to look for new job opportunities in Boston. And about two months after I got here was when the, the bombing happened, and then you know we all had to take care of each other um, over the next six seven months and heal from our wounds Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of inspiration i think i get more inspired by when i see the other people that were impacted the other amputees because in watching my dad learn how to walk again i see how difficult that is and um, the margin of error is very small in terms of you have to learn how to use a new leg and trust it and you know you can fall and he does sometimes yeah but to see some of the other amputees Um, that if you didn't know they had lost a leg and saw them walking around you wouldn't even realize it because they have decided um, not to kind of sit at home and feel pity for themselves they've kind of taken it on themselves and I think a lot of that fed off the way the city responded to where um, you know they use the Boston Strong motto Mm -hmm. but I think you know it became very personal for people and they didn't they didn't want to feel like victims right. and that's why they don't call they call themselves survivors
2: yeah so yeah a couple of people I know i i, I just make sure never to say victim some people because, get
1: very adamant about oh it.
2: yeah no there are a couple of people a couple of people i work with that would smack me if i said it i've yeah. gotten I've gotten, <laughs> I've gotten into the habit i think in the, in the right
1: way um and there was a good support group because everyone kept in touch so if someone was down or having issues with their leg there was you know 16 other people that were there to to give them advice or say you know i've had that same issue you're not alone
2: so, and so you've gotten to know i know your folks have gotten to know a lot of these people yeah. you've gotten to know some of these people as well it's it's so it's like a sort of fratern, almost kind of a, a collegial fraternity kind oh, of
1: like my father calls it the worst fraternity in the world ever <laughs> joined <laughs> um, a fraternity you never wanted to yeah. Join, yeah no but 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 it is and it, you know it, one of the things i noticed is the a lot of the other survivors are people I never would have met in my entire life because our paths never would have crossed. But, you know, because we come from different professions, different uh, towns, but getting to know all of them, you know, they become friends in a yeah. lot of ways because, you know, we can share stories that some people might not understand about our experiences and about something like the doctors we've met and some of the treatments, and it, it it's a good outlet because... You know, my friends are always there for me, but sometimes they're not going to really understand what, you know, the impact was to us. So, yeah, we, we keep in touch.
2: There have been um, some arranged uh,
1: trips, right? Yeah, there was a trip to France. Did you go on that one? I did not. Or your your folks went on that one. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if I could uh, be on a boat with them for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> this is all private, by the way. There's yeah. no way
3: this gets broadcast. Well, oh no,
2: no, they, they, they all, they'll, they'll hear this. <laughs> they'll hear it eventually, even though you told me your dad doesn't know what a podcast is. So. Uh, my, <laughs> my, mom, my mom, will show up. <laughs> she she does. I talk yeah. to her, and she there she listens to a couple podcasts. So, um. uh, you
1: know, I th- I thought it was a good trip for them to get away, and sure. I had some stuff going on in, in Boston that I had to kind of get settled, mm-hmm. and it just it it made sense for us to just kind of have some some space at that point in time.
2: Now you're one of the the um survivors who attended the the trial of uh Darnayev, the the defendant here. And um tell us a little bit about the experience because I guess um tell us why you wanted to do it and then tell us more because I we we were just talking about how it hasn't gone
1: um quite as you expected. Sure, I was actually thinking about this a lot on the way over because I know we had we had talked about it. Um I guess my motivation for going was you know, to to try to get some sense of closure and to understand the whole process. It's so I think a lot of the uh, survivors went just to actually physically put their eyes on him to mm-hmm. you know because you expect when they lead him out of the door in the side of the courtroom that this monster is going to come out, Right. and then this hippie looking kid comes out, and it's it's just it's kind of disorienting in some ways. Um, but you know my experience with the trial so far was the first two days were extremely difficult because it was reopening old wounds. We were seeing images and videos that we had never seen before that included pictures of us um, and videos uh, of people getting that we have become friends with getting severely injured. Um, and the thing that I kind of took away from it about a week later, because on the Thursday, the, the first Thursday, of the trial um, I was actually going out to visit my parents afterwards and we all drove out to central Massachusetts and everyone was kind of numb and couldn't speak to one another and you know it hit me really hard and I I guess what really got me was the survivors who were testifying that we had gotten to know um, as friends but we knew them through, you know, shared experiences with doctors, or what town they were in, or their spouse, or, um, you know, what prosthetic they were using, and so it was kind of, it was kind of a, a, a friendship that was not too personal, but then some of the survivors got up and actually told the story of how what they were feeling that day, and the moment that everything happened. And it it kind of moved it for me to a different level when I would see someone up on the stand who I had joked with and gone to charity stuff and to hear her say, I didn't want my mother to know I died on Boylston Street. And that was kind of jarring because it it took a a different face to it. Um, And there was another family, um, a mother and daughter, who were injured as well too and were separated. And that's what happened to my parents is we all were separated. And the daughter spoke about not knowing if she'd ever see her mother and her father again. And to me, that really kind of resonated because I almost wanted to stand up in the courtroom and be like, I know exactly how you feel. And like no one else, like with my friends, they wouldn't quite get that, but she completely got it. Um, so that was, that, that to me, it, it kind of changed the, the dynamic of how we looked at each other, the, the survivors, and it made it much more personal, to be honest.
2: When you um, got separated from your parents, yep. was it was it pretty soon thereafter that you figured out where everyone was? No, or, no, no. Oh, So, so after the the blast, we, we you, were put into three
1: different ambulances to three different hospitals. Oh my God! So um, you, so you didn't know the extent of their injuries at that point. I could see my father on the ground. I could tell he was very badly injured, and I could see the people around me. I could hear them. I could hear the screams. That was the thing that resonates in my mind, and I, I could tell the people were badly injured. When I got to the tent at Copley, and they were checking me out, um, I remember asking one of the attendants there, I "Said what happened? Did a transformer blow?" And which I know yeah, you mentioned yeah. too, yeah. and he goes, "No, it was a bomb." And I looked at him and I said, was anyone killed? And he wouldn't answer my question. He just kind of looked, and I, in my head I'm like, that means that someone was. And I assumed it, it, it was a good possibility It was one of my parents. So when I got in the ambulance, one of the first images that was broadcast was me being wheeled out of the bombing site. And my, one of my brother's friends saw it and was like, that's Kevin. And a lot of other people did, so I was getting calls and texts what's going on. And I was trying to get in touch with my brother and he um, is a psychologist out in Portland Oregon so when he's in session he doesn't answer his phone. So I had a friend of mine call the main office and have him call me and he finally got in touch with me and he said, you know, what's going on? I said, you should turn on the TV and, you know, he quickly did and he said, you know, what what is going on? I said, there's been an explosion. Mom, Dad, and I were injured in it. Uh, You need to come out to Boston, and I think you should prepare yourself for the fact that they might be dead. And he flew out right then. And given some of his connections in the medical community in Boston, he was able to locate where my mother was first, which was at Boston Medical Center. When I found that out, I left the hospital I was at and got driven over to Boston Medical Center, readmitted, and they realized my wounds were a little more severe than they would originally thought. And that was about two to four hours after the bombing. And when I got out of the CAT scan, I was wheeled into kind of a waiting area where my mom was. And she looked at me and she said, your father's a Mass General. He's alive, but he has lost his leg. And to me, that made no sense whatsoever. Because you just don't think something like that's ever going to happen. You don't think you're going to go out to get a lunch during the marathon and suddenly lose a limb. Yeah. So it took probably a day or two for that to settle in. And then, you know, we were on the same floor, but probably about five rooms down from one another. But we both couldn't walk, so we couldn't see each other. So I think I was discharged on that Thursday or Friday. I think Friday. And that was, my brother was there, and that was the first time that I actually saw my dad, because we drove over to Mass General at that point. So it wasn't,
2: that... That That was the first time I heard his voice. Right, right. And, um, I mean, you must have been gratified to see him alive, right?
1: Yeah, but, I mean, it it was just, it was so, it, it was so hard to understand, to comprehend what was going on, because you walk into the room, and... He's sitting there, and you know my father, he's an interesting guy. And you know the first thing he said to me when I, when I walked in, is he goes, I don't know if you know this, but I lost my leg. Right. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's kind of obvious. We can see. And, yeah. Yeah. and just kind of you know, spending time in the ICU unit there, it just was such a strange experience. I, I heard some people say that they expected their leg to grow back, yeah. that they'd wake up one day and it would be, it would be normal again and I think it it took a lot of time for people to to really grapple with that
2: you and I were talking about the the one fund and the fact that it it, it did some good for you and and your folks but um, um, and and while I think every survivor is really grateful for the the gift that they got the money that they got from the one fund that um, it's too bad it can't be an annual living breathing thing at present it isn't, right? No,
1: it's it's basically um, ended. Yeah. Um, the the residual of it is uh, kind of what's called the Resiliency Center, which is I mm. think through Boston Medical Center, and it's more of kind of mental support as well. Yeah. Um, but the financial aspects of it um, are gone uh, because it, they really wanted to have a fixed, closed date on it. And I agree, because we had talked about, this, that it should be kind of a perpetual thing. Yeah but um, I think there was a lot of kind of politics to it where they wanted to get the money out the door as fast as they could uh, as equally distributed as possible and to...
2: to um, um, we don't want to keep you forever, Kevin, uh, but but that, but, that, that, but thank, thanks so much for coming. So will, will you... Um, are you going
1: to go back to the trial or do you think you've, you've kind of had enough of that? I was actually planning on going Monday but I've heard the testimony Monday is going to be brutal yeah. Um, so I don't think I'll go back I'd like to try to understand what the defense is actually going to present yeah, and what their case is going to be like because at this point they've conceded so they're just trying to keep him from uh, death basically you, you
2: you think they've conceded to the actions that he did the actions was the so first other, thing that she yeah. said
1: in her opening statements was he did it Okay. so there's been a yeah. lot of kind of Angst about if she if they admitted it right off the bat. Why why is this being drug out? So why would yeah yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, why are we coming in? But you know I think I mean, uh, obviously I'm in a room full of attorneys <laughs> that so well I, I, I don't I, practice
2: law anymore yeah. and and neither does Sarah in a technical sense I guess so but uh.
3: that's true. But Kevin, I wanted to ask you as a uh, recovering trial attorney. I mean um, you know we we all talk to one another yep. so we think we know everything. But day to day,
0: as the trial has unfolded, I mean, first of all, I've been really impressed with the methodical way in which the prosecution has laid out the timeline, yeah. has laid out the events. Um,
3: and a lot of it was really a surprise to me. I and mean, it seems there, there's been a fair amount of information that had not been released to the public. Is that
1: uh, how you felt? There's a lot of information that wasn't released to the public. Um, they had given us kind of a, a prep, uh, about a month before the trial started, about what their timeline was going to be, and they said they basically said there's going to be a, they have something like ten thousand pieces of evidence, and if you think about it, on Boylston Street, there's cameras everywhere, mm-hmm. and also at the finish line, when people most people at the finish line are waiting to see someone cross, so they're all doing this, all holding their, their smartphones up yeah. And, yeah. and recording, yep. right? Yeah. So they they said there's going to be a lot more information that'll come out that you you've never heard. Wow. before. And I think some of it is uh, is under seal, so it will never come out. Um, but some some of it has
2: So tell us if people want to contribute to, to your efforts running this year, how can they do that?
1: Um well it's actually <laughs> Kevin is frantically checking his phone right now well, to because get the direct information. It's it's difficult because it's it's not like there's a very simple website for it <laughs> <laughs> you'd think they would do that since they you, want people could, to give right so, it, so. it's a, it's a crowd rise um website and you just have to search for boston medical center 2015 and a whole page will pull up with all the runners i think there's about 78 um i'm probably the the last so you have to scroll through a couple of pages okay i actually just set up my page last night so i'm a little behind on everything <laughs> all right um I, I have the flexibility with um most charities with all charities uh You have to raise Mm $5,000 per person to run. To Um, run, yeah. But because I get my number through the BAA, I'm kind of exempt from that. But I still want to raise money for them. Right. It just... The last couple of months have been a little hectic, and I'm not the best at setting up websites. Is this is what we're sure. here for, Kevin. We're gonna we're we're gonna pump it up right now. So that's no, so why I, I finished so, yeah. it. This, I actually finished it this morning because I knew I was coming here today. Good, thank Great. goodness.
2: Yeah. Um, so um, at worst, they can they can Google Boston Medical Center 2015 marath-
1: 2015
2: marathon yeah. and it'll come up. And it's a you it's say it's crowd r- crowd, rise. crowd rise. Yep. That's the that's the, that's uh, the forum for it. That hosts this that, the, 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 that, that makes able for people to get money. Okay, so um, oh, so it's a crowd rise site. Boston Medical Center, two thousand fifteen marathon, and make sure to go to Kevin White's page and uh, donate in honor of, of Kevin running again. This might be the last year he runs, so you, yeah. know, let, you know, let's do it. Let's do it this no year. No way. Come yeah, on. but thank you. Last time run a marathon. But uh, Kevin, so we've been doing this podcast not forever, but for a few months now, and. Um, I mean, I I hope this doesn't sound like uh, pandering or whatever, but the bravery, Kevin, of you um, being willing to to Mm tell us about, you know, what happened that day and what has happened since. Um, We appreciate it. I appreciate being here. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed. So uh, thanks for joining us, Kevin. Please join us again on Unbillable Boston. Check out all past episodes on unbillableboston.com, and we will see you next time.
0: This is Nancy Cremens from Gesmer Up to Grove, and you're listening to Unbillable Boston.
2: How'd you do? Uh-huh. Hi, this is your host, David Yaz. I'm over at Morgan Stanley where I do financial planning and special needs planning. And I wanted to offer my continued thanks for you for to listening for Unbillable Boston. We're gonna continue our coverage of uh, the marathon and looking back at the marathon bombing two years later. Um, what you're going to hear next is a conversation between myself and Sarah Worley and Julia Houston, who's the president of the Boston Bar Association. She will defend the BBA's decision to implore the Department of Justice not to seek the death penalty in the trial of the Boston Marathon bomber. Hope you enjoy this discussion as we continue on looking back at the marathon. Sure. Right. Um so Julia doesn't have a ton of time so but we did want to get to one other thing and that is um the BBA sent a letter to the Department of Justice uh urging them not to seek the death penalty in the in the case of uh Tsarnayev the, the the Boston Marathon bomber and I say this sort of parenthetically because it's it's obviously the biggest case that's uh, going on I guess apologies to all the people working on the Aaron Hernandez case but um so you know as we speak he's still on trial um and tell us why, See, first first off, tell us why you think it's appropriate for the Boston Bar to take uh, positions on issues like this generally, and then tell us why you thought it was important to reaffirm the association's opposition to the death penalty in this particular case.
3: The Boston Bar Association has opposed the death penalty for more than 40 years. We had never uh, before considered the application of the death penalty In federal cases, in non-death penalty states such as Massachusetts, that's a new issue. Uh, So the way that it works is that in Massachusetts state court, the death penalty is not applied, it's not available. But in federal cases, the Department of Justice has the discretion to apply the death penalty. And frankly, there just wasn't a lot of literature out there Mm -hmm. on how and whether the death penalty should be applied in those kinds of cases where you have a state where the death penalty is illegal. So we put together a task force a couple of years ago, which was chaired by retired Judge Margaret Hinkle and Marty Murphy, who is a partner at Foley Hoag. And they did a rather comprehensive study of this issue. And the report was released in January of 2014, mm-hmm. right around the time that um, the Department of Justice announced that they would be seeking the death penalty against um, uh, Was it wh-
2: I'm sorry, was the study... Did the study start before or after the bombing?
3: Uh, uh, I can't remember the time so, exactly. But I guess
2: more to the point, is it connected or not? In other words, was the, the, the study of the statistics of the death penalty or everything, it wasn't prompted by the the Marathon bomber, was it? The,
3: stu- the study was not technically connected to that case or right. any particular case, uh-huh. but I'll cut to the punchline. Sure. We use the study and the results of the study to comment on the Sarnaev case and right. to make the point that we don't think that the uh, Attorney General should apply the death penalty in that case for the reasons that we set out in the report.
2: Mm-hmm. So tell us, um, tell us a little more about the, the reasons.
3: There are three fundamental reasons why the death penalty is inconsistent with the administration of justice uh, in our view and based on the studies that the task force did. The first is that the inevitability of error will make it um, overwhelmingly likely that using the death penalty will lead to the execution of innocent people. This is not just a theoretical possibility, it has happened. When you look at the statistics, in the last 40 years, in the time that the BBA has opposed the death penalty, more than 143 wrongfully convicted uh, defendants on death row were exonerated, 143. That's a shocking number and it's unacceptable. Um, The BBA has pressed the uh, federal and state governments to embrace certain reforms to reduce the incidence of wrongful convictions using videotaping with confessions and so forth. Most of these reforms have not been enacted. Uh, we have task force reports on those issues. But as long as we have a system that results in such an unacceptably high level of wrongful convictions, we cannot be applying the death penalty in a just society. That's the first reason. Uh, the second reason is that in practice, death penalty has a disproportionate impact on people of color. Uh, when you look at the data, uh, so if you look at the federal system, which as we talked about is, you know, is It can use the death penalty in Massachusetts even though we're a non-death penalty state So since 1988 uh, Of the 492 defendants against whom the federal government has sought the death penalty 74% of them were members of minority groups, okay? Uh, And then when you look at it from a different direction the death penalty is sought significantly more often in cases where the victim is white at 37% than in cases where the victim is African American or Hispanic, which is 21%. And you can talk all day about the reasons for those disparities, but the fact is that they exist and we think that that is a problem and it's a reason not to apply the death penalty. Mm -hmm. It suggests that there is an unfairness uh, that uh, makes it, um, you know, that is prejudicing uh, people of color.
2: And your, your third reason, if I'm not mistaken, has to do with the cost of the process, right? That's
3: right. It's, the cost is eight times higher to seek to put somebody to death uh, rather than to seek to put them in prison with no possibility of parole. These cases are very expensive. Because of
2: the appeal process and they the fight while they're on death row, they're fighting and, exi- and you know, using all kinds of court resources, right?
3: In part, uh, the cases are more complex when the death penalty is involved. Uh, and on average, there are 16 years of appeals in death penalty cases. So people seem to have this idea that the death penalty is swift and sure. And as you can see here, it's not swift and it's not sure. Uh, and even when the death penalty is applied, only a fraction of the people are actually executed. And so, uh, and we're not saying execute more of those people. I mean, we think the death penalty is uh, is wrong and, and should be abrogated altogether. But you know, going back to the big picture, when you look at these systemic problems with the death penalty, we believe that it is inconsistent with the administration of justice even if in a particular case you might not have these concerns, even if you're sure in a particular case that the person committed the crime or the person isn't being treated differently because he or she is a member of a minority group, uh, our view is that we need to focus as lawyers on the systemic problems with this. We don't want to align ourselves with a system that is fundamentally unfair, which results in the execution of innocent people and which treats racial and ethnic minorities unfairly. We don't want to do it.
2: And I I think I heard you say something at one point about the the healing process. So this was, needless to say, a profound tragedy for the city. Tell me why you think um, avoiding the the death penalty helps the city heal?
3: I think that the longer this process gets drawn out and the more we hear about the tragedy and the wrongful acts of the defendant, you know, the longer it will take for us to get to the healing stage. If Jokhar Sarnai was allowed to plead guilty in exchange for life imprisonment without parole, we would move to the part of the case where the victims would be front and center and they would have their day in court. And it wouldn't be about the defendant anymore. He would have admitted what he did. It would be about the victims. What impact did this have on their lives and their families and their loved ones and those that are lost? And that would go into the determination as to, um, uh, you know, how he is treated thereafter. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't think that having a long, drawn-out trial of the, um, you know, the acts of violence uh, is particularly helpful in facilitating the healing process, and that could have been avoided by allowing the defendant to elect... Uh, life imprisonment as a penalty in exchange for pleading guilty
2: so you sort of we're getting to this before but in this case with your three reasons the it's this is not uh, a false accusation because he's he's admitted to the acts it's it's painfully obvious that we've got the guy that did this right so that so that that reason doesn't apply he isn't being uh unfairly singled out because of his, his ethnicity is he
3: I can't say what, I I can't speak to that issue. I don't have enough information about the particular case.
2: What, Um, are you kidding me? (laughs) This is the guy, right? This is the guy that that killed people on Boylston Street. he's, He's facing a trial right now because he did it, not because of his ethnicity, right?
3: Well, so the prosecution is putting on its case right now, and we have not heard from the defense side yet so I want to be respectful of the fact that every case does have both sides. Um,
2: but we could be practical too, Julia. Right? This is the guy who did it. This is the guy. This is the guy that we, we all watched on TV. Hide in a boat, and 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 uh, after he just days earlier had blown people up on Boylston Street. But I guess what I'm getting at is that that this we've we've got the guy here, and so the first two reasons don't apply. Now you said. That's important for the BBA to, to stand against the death penalty, even in cases where not all those reasons apply, right? But, I think but, that's if, the point. but in this case, only the, the third one applies, and that's the cost. And I suppose that, that's, a, that's a, a factor here, right?
3: Well, we take the position that the death penalty is always unjust, even if those particular factors do not apply in any particular case. The death penalty itself is inconsistent with the administration of justice. Mm. And just because the injustices may fall on some people, but not other people, or may fall on some people harder than other people, does not mean that you should continue to apply the death penalty. It is a fundamentally flawed system.
2: Even if it is, why bring it up in this case, though? Because the the, the BBA actively sent a letter to the DOJ in this case, right? We did. Yeah. So, um, and not for the Gary Lee Sampson case, and I suppose you could have, right?
3: As far as I know, we did not send one in that case. Right.
2: So, um, and yet in this case, the first, the first two reasons don't apply, and the first two reasons to me are the most critical ones, I mean, the, uh, and, and I'll, I'll take your presumption that the death penalty is, is fundamentally flawed. Even if it, you could argue, even if it kills one or two innocent people, you know, over the course of whatever, that's horrible. You know, that's so you know better to put the person in prison. And the fact that it it uh, disproportionately treats um, minorities, you know, uh, unfairly. More minorities are being put to death. That that's also a horrible notion. But not in this case. Not in this case. And you've got. and, and I'm just curious to know how, why you picked this case to get up on a platform and talk about how the death penalty is wrong when you've got a, a guy, one, one of the biggest tragedies in the history of the city, you've got people with their legs blown off that are still trying to make sense of it, was this really the right time to say, by the way, this guy certainly don't want to put him to death, even though he did it, even though uh, he's not being singled out because he's, he's a minority?
3: The reason that we weighed in on this issue when we did is that we have a new Attorney General who is in the process of being confirmed, although I guess there have been some delays there, Mm -hmm. but we expect that Loretta Lynch is going to be the new Attorney General. Mm -hmm. We are hopeful that she will bring a different perspective uh, and a fresh view on this issue. Uh, we released our letter asking the Department of Justice to reconsider this issue, um, you know, because of the changing leadership, uh, as I just described, uh, and also because the government had an opportunity to change course before the trial started and to make the plea offer that would have allowed the defendant to avoid the death penalty. Right. It would have been a good time to do that, mm-hmm. and it would have spared boston a lot of um uh you know a lot of you know money and emotion and trauma you know associated with going forward with the trial uh the government chose not to do that and the trial is underway and a
2: lot a lot of that emotion i take it is is uh, that of the survivors of the bombing right yes so tell me do you think that do you think that the survivors are going to better heal and get on from this if the if prosecutors decide not to seek the death penalty?
3: I think that that is a very individual decision, and we have to be respectful of the emotions of the people who are most directly affected by the tragedy. But I will tell you, David, that one of the most moving things I ever heard was uh, I was at the state house one day to give testimony on something or another before the legislature, and I was waiting my turn. And do you remember Jeffrey Curley, the, yeah, b- the boy who died after he was, he was sexually abused and killed Until, by yeah. people mm-hmm. who were truly evil? I listened to his father testify against the death penalty mm-hmm. on the grounds that killing the people who did that to his son would not bring his son back, it would not help with healing and it would only increase the violence and evil in the world. Right. And I think a lot of people who have been hurt and have been victimized, even by horrible practices, and suffered enormous loss, you know, often you know take the position that imposing the death penalty doesn't make the hurt any better.
2: Have you talked to any of the survivors of the marathon bombing?
3: I have. Uh, I have not directly talked to survivors. Uh, the BBA has done outreach in a number of ways, including by giving pro bono services to uh, individuals and businesses who were affected by the bombings.
2: Don't you think you should have? I mean, or at least talk to the lawyers who work with someone, because I know the BBA, I, I know, because I, I know some of these lawyers that have done pro bono work for the survivors and I, I think that's it was absolutely the right thing to do. But. I just have to ask you, if you're a person who was there that day and had their limb blown off or watched there as 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 a friend who was, was mortally injured or, or, or even died, um, I just wonder if it's really the Boston Bars Association's place to tell them how best to get on with their healing. I think you could have... Taking a step back on this one and let the wheels of justice take their take their uh, do you know take their course, and do the pro bono work and that to me is a better way to make the city heal. So, um, I know a lot of these people. Um, some of them are my my clients, and um, I don't know. Some of them may indeed think that the that uh, the defendant should uh, go uh, be put to death, and some of them may not. But I'm just not sure why. It's the BBA's place. So that's my piece. I'll let, I'll let you respond, Julia. I don't, I don't want to turn this into a, uh, a big fight because you've been so kind and you, you've, you've, uh, you've taken more time than, uh, <laughs> than you have, really. So now, did you want to go ahead?
3: No, I mean, I appreciate your view, David. Um, yeah, but I have to tell you that by sending the letter to incoming Attorney General Loretta Lynch, we believe that we are providing important information that is crucial uh, to the government in deciding whether and when to impose the death penalty. And a lot of people don't know that it costs eight times as much or don't know the large number of people who are wrongfully convicted and later exonerated. And of course, there are people who are wrongfully convicted and then executed. Uh, Many people do not know about the impact on racial and ethnic minorities and we believe it's our duty as lawyers to advocate for these issues even in the face of a tough case because these are systemic issues it affects us as a society and if the lawyers don't speak on these issues who will
2: well i think that's probably the your best argument i don't necessarily buy it but we can agree to (laughs) we can agree to disagree and um i appreciate you you talking to us about it i mean i i think um I mean, I think in a sense, you're right. In a sense, that's what a lawyer does. He he sticks up for um, those that don't typically uh, get represented. They speak for people without a voice. And maybe in this case, what you're saying is, well, we, we have to stand up and say this even in the face of a tragedy. Personally, I wouldn't have done it. I would I would have said, we're not going to scream about the death penalty. We're going to continue to support the uh, survivors. Even though we oppose it, we realize this is such a a, a raw time for the city. But... Oh, look at that. It's my podcast, so I get to have the last word. That's, I, hate, I used to hate people that did that. Anyway, um, Julia, b- before you go, and once again, thanks for taking the extra time with us. Um, what, uh, what should we tell people that uh, want to know more about the BBA, or, or do you want to plug something for lawyers out there to get them more involved in things that you're doing? What should they do?
3: So, uh, the BBA has more than 12,000 members uh, from all different parts of the legal community, from private practice, corporations, government agencies, legal aid, uh, uh, the courts, and law students too. Uh, we welcome everybody. Uh, there are many ways to get involved. Um, you know, the mission of the BBA is to advance the uh, highest standards of excellence for the legal profession, to facilitate access to justice, uh, and also to serve the community at large. And there are ways to get involved in projects and programs in all three of those areas. Our headquarters is at 16 Beacon Street. We welcome people who are interested to stop by, visit the webpage at bostonbar.org, uh, or call.
2: All right. Sarah, do you have any final words of wisdom before we bid adieu to Julia?
0: No, David. I'm good. Thank you.
2: Well, it's good because the music's getting louder as we speak. So. Thank you to Julia Houston. She was a good sport. She put up with my little rant, and um, we applaud that. Please join us next time on Unbillable Boston, unbillableboston.com. Have a great one. Bye-bye. And a longer, more substantive interview with Boston Bar Association President Julia Houston will be featured in a future episode of in boston so check that out we just wanted to get in that topic the marathon topic and have uh, julia talk a little bit about the trial rounding out our uh, look back at the marathon bombing two years ago we have a conversation coming up with heather abbott you may know heather she is um, a very brave woman who uh, lost the lower part of her leg in the marathon bombing Since then has become a motivational speaker and she's launched a new foundation, which you may have heard on last episode of Unbillable Boston. But we have uh, some final thoughts from Heather coming up next. And we thank you for listening. Check out all past episodes at unbillableboston.com. Or if you forget that, just remember thebostonpodcast.com. This is David Yaz. My thanks to my co-hosts, Sarah Worley and Max Perlman, because they're so awesome. See you next time. Heather Abbott and um, we just had a really great conversation during the break and I can't believe I didn't record it. It's just uh, make that mistake almost every week but Heather was telling me about her uh, speaking engagement so um, another sort of cool thing that's that's come out of this is that some of the survivors who have been so upfront, people want to keep hearing their stories and so I know of uh, a few that do this. How did you start um, doing speaking engagements?
0: Started um, when people asked me. Um, You know, I had practically just gotten back from the hospital Mm -hmm. and um, people wanted to hear, you know, what happened. And so I think the first one I did was for um, a university local to where I live, uh, Salve Regina University. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really great, you know, kind of part of my healing process to be able to talk about it Mm -hmm. and to make some good out of it, I guess. Um, Because every time I spoke about what happened to me and, and the help that I got and um, and now the opportunity to, to pay it forward um, you know people always tell me they feel inspired by that or they can relate to it somehow in, in some sort of adversity they're facing in their own lives mm-hmm. um, so I, I knew initially early on that it was something that I wanted I thought I wanted to pursue and and I did and it's been great and I've been all over the country
2: hmm that's give us a few you just told me you were in San Francisco yes. Which is great other than it's not very amputee friendly because <laughs> of all the hills, <laughs> kind of obvious. Um, where else have you been? Um, I've been to
0: all over the East Coast. I'm off to Houston at the end
1: of the month, um, Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Do us a favor
2: and revitalize it. Detroit could use a little inspiration, right? Yeah. Um, and I've got uh, three commencement speeches coming up this, this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, if people want to book you. What should they do?
0: Um, they could um, work through my agent at the American
2: Program. Oh, she's got an agent. This is how big a shot she is. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, your agent's where?
0: At the American Program Bureau.
2: Okay, and is there a website for that or? Um, they, they can Google it. Amer- One more time. American?
0: American
2: Program Bureau. Program Bureau. They need to snap your name, but that's okay. Th- that's a local company that you just mentioned to me yeah, before. they're out of Newton. They're out of Newton. Okay. And, like, I, you know, I went on there and was poking around. I saw your profile, and they've got some, some big names on there. Um, so, and uh, none bigger than you, though, of course. I mean, <laughs> come on. So do you enjoy doing that?
0: I really do. Yeah, it's great. Um, I do a lot here in Boston, and um, oftentimes I'll uh, run into people um, who were at the marathon that day or knew someone that was there and, um, you know, always want to talk about that experience. Um, And, and, you know, I think they were such a big part of rebuilding the city afterwards that it's nice to be able to, you know, to spend some time with them and tell them about my story.
2: I saw the recording of your speech at uh, Bridgewater State. Is that right? Did you, do you um, use, uh, Yes, it
0: was uh, Or is it
2: Stonehill College. No. It was Bridgewater, Bridgewater, State State.
0: Bridgewater State.
2: In Virginia. Oh, in Virginia. Okay. Oh, well that that's probably, I was about to say nicer than this our our Bridgewater State, but um um so uh what what do you tell your story like back to that day or like what do you what do you talk about?
0: Um I talk mostly about um you know, people will always ask me, you know, how did you do it? If that had happened to me, I don't think I I don't think I could have bounced back. Um, and I think a lot of people would be surprised probably at their ability to be resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I would have said the same thing to myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, right. So I kind of explained to people, you know... When I, people ask me that question, I think, well, how did I do it? You know, And when I look back at that, um, I, I can point to certain steps and um, processes that I went through that really helped me um, get back on my feet, so to speak.
2: Yeah, <laughs> in every way. Huh? And that's it for the podcast this week. Thanks for joining us on Unbillable Boston We'll see you next week. All past episodes, com or thebostonpodcast.com. Give us a review. Give us a like. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud when you click through. And we will see you next week.